Father, we come before you now in the precious and wonderful name of Jesus, and we ask for your blessing on this word. Lord, we believe that uh, you have prepared the way for this message, and we just ask that you would speak. And if there's anybody here that's not right with you, uh, bring them home, Jesus, bring them home. In your precious name, amen. Well, I'm going to preach from one of my favorite sections of Scripture out of Philippians chapter 3, and um, we were singing about the second to the last song was out of this portion of Scripture, but I want to lay a foundation before we actually get into the portion of Scripture here I want to deal with. Um, Paul was a radical, and uh, he was normal. So the problem is we can think he's so radical because we're so subnormal. But if we were normal, we would think he's just another one of the normal bunch. And wouldn't it be great if we were all normal Pauls? Right? Isn't that what he wants? I mean, we make Paul to be Paul and somebody very special because, well, we think that's beyond what God can do, is it? You know, now there'll never be another Paul. There was only one Paul. You know, but that same life, that same zeal, that same passion can be in the heart of anybody. It's, it's not... It wasn't something reserved just for him. It's just he lived it out. And we're going to look at what made Paul, Paul. Because that's really what I want to focus on. What made Paul, Paul? What made him the radical that he was? And uh, so when you look at his conversion experience, Acts chapter 9, um, you know, you go into this conversion experience. It's unique for Paul, okay, as far as the experience. He was on the Damascus Road, ready to pers- going to Damascus to persecute the church. And uh, uh, God knocks him down and blinds him, terrifies him. I mean, shook the man to the very core of his being. And uh, here's a little tidbit for you. Um, You can find nowhere in Scripture where Paul was knocked off his horse. There is no horse anywhere in the story. You know where that came from? A painting by a famous artist that painted Paul on a horse, and somehow that became gospel. But it's not true. He wasn't, I don't know if he was on a horse. It doesn't say. just says he was knocked down. Okay, so we got that, uh, that heresy taken care of. All right, so. <laughs> but you know what came out of that conversion, out of that being born again, was a normal conversion. Normal as God defines it. Not maybe as the church defines it, because what we call normal today in America is not normal by God's standard. But Paul was a normal Christian. And that's what we need. We need those kind of conversions today. I'm tired of the wimpy little things. People pray a prayer and they don't change or they, they're so half-hearted or they're in and out and back and forth and up and down. I'm so weary of that. I want to see Paul's. I want to see people that are set ablaze, people that God's using to turn the world upside down because guess what? He wants to do it through his, through his people. Well, yesterday, I got up really early and uh, me and uh, uh, David went out to get a car for him. And the guy who was selling the car, north, north part of, uh, of Cincinnati, uh, is Muslim. And uh, so it was kind of interesting trying to find a way to talk to him, you know. And, and after David went back to go to work, um, and I finished the deal and everything, I was eventually got some uh, way to witness to him. But it was just right in the beginning, we were in the car talking, and I had asked him, uh, you know, he said something about his wife, and I says, oh, so you're married, that's good to hear, and he, he, that's where he brought out that he was uh, Muslim, and says, well, we have to do that, you know, that's what, what we are, and, and uh, so I started talking a little bit about Jesus, and he just basically referred to that Christians are hypocrites, and so you know what I said to him? I says, I'm not, David's not, we're not hypocrites, we're the real thing. I says, sorry you have, a, you have that experience, but that's what's happened. You know, see, the standard of Christianity is so low, the world looks at it and wants nothing to do with it. What do we have that's attractive to a Muslim? We may say we believe the truth and we may have the truth, but what will attract them if we don't live out the reality of the biblical faith, if we don't live it out with every fiber of our being that the world can look at and say, you have something I don't have. And so his experience from it was just this thing that wasn't real. Well, by the time we left, we were having a good conversation and not deep into, the, into Christianity. I didn't want to go and 
and, and just shut them down totally. So, but it was, uh, it was some interesting stuff that was there. But yet that's the experience of so many people. They look at Christians, they see the compromise, the worldliness, all the junk that the world does. You can't tell any difference. And they say, why do I want that? Well, Paul had a biblical faith, and his faith was so beautiful, his faith was so attractive, that's why when he went places, God showed up and revival was there. Because he was taking the real thing, he was the real thing, and the power of God was operating through him. And so he comes to the city of Thessalonica, and here's the testimony of an unsaved man, out to attack Paul, out to bring ruin and death to Paul. And he says, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. That was a derogatory statement, but I can't imagine anything to be a greater compliment. May God do that with us. But he's not going to if we are not going to let him, if we're not going to live the life, if we're not going to pursue him like we should. It's not going to happen, but it can. He's not a respecter of people. What he did in the past through others, he can do through us. He doesn't love some people more than other people. It's available to us. It's available to any of us. It's just we got so much baggage, so much junk, so much things in our life that we just stop him from doing anything beyond what we've done because we're not willing to pay the price. We're not willing to seek him and to make him the prize of our life that people begin to see. Well, you know what happened as Paul went on? Here's, he did everything opposite of what goes on in, in American Christianity. You see, we look at it when the newborn comes to Christ, okay? That person comes to Christ, they're excited, they're zealous, and then what does everybody kind of do? And I'm not, this isn't in this church, but I'll tell you what, it's in a lot of churches basically, and they may not say it like this, but the reality is they'll kind of go and says, well, you know, he'll get like, he'll, he'll, he'll mature and, uh, and, you know, he'll get over that. Basically what they're saying, uh, eventually he's going to become dead like us. That's not the way it's designed. We should become more and more zealous, more and more on fire, more and more in love with Jesus as time goes on. The older we get, the passion of God should be greater than it's ever been when we were young. And if it's not, there's something we've done wrong with our Christian faith because we should be growing in the knowledge of this relationship. And the effect upon that upon our lives should be so evident that people can see that's a mature believer. Look at the passion he has. Look at the passion she has. Look at the zeal that's in their life. That's what Christian maturity is all about. But how many are we able to say that have that kind of life today in the church? How many? So what happens, he grows up a little bit more. And then you come to Acts chapter 19, verse 26. Another attack from an unsaved individual. Demetrius coming against, against Paul. It says, you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. I mean, he was trying to have Paul killed. Why? Because Demetrius was kind of like the head of the silversmiths. And the silversmiths had a booming industry. And what was the industry? It was selling idols for the goddess Diana. And so what was going on is so many people were being saved that the industry of selling idols was hurting. Now, we have to understand something about Ephesus. Ephesus was a major Roman colony. That means it had a contingent of soldiers, Roman soldiers that were there. And uh, it was on the sea, the Mediterranean. Now it's about a, a mile. The ruins of it is about a mile from the sea because of sediment and, and so on. But it was a major Roman colony, a very important city, had over 300,000 people in it. Now, how many people do you think would have to get saved for the silversmiths to begin to say, we are going to start a riot because we want to silence Paul and get him out of here because what he's doing is causing us so much trouble. We are losing so much money because of him. How many people? 300,000 in the city. How many people would have to be saved for that to begin to happen? Five? I mean, you think the devil would be scared of five people being saved? How about maybe even 50? I mean, you think that's going to disturb the city of 300,000? How many people do you think that was? I can't give a number to it, but I would venture to say you're in the thousands. I mean, you're getting something that's having such a big impact that their income 
is being affected. So how many people in this city would have to get saved, in these surrounding communities, surrounding counties, how many people would have to get saved before the drug dealers wanted to burn this church down? Before the bar owners would be so mad at you, they would try to figure out somehow how to shut this church down. How many people would have to get saved before, before the effects became so great that the enemies of Christ would rise up and want to silence this church? May God do it. But you understand the picture that's going on? This is what happened. Paul comes to town. You have riots because you have revival. Okay? It wasn't the church starting the riots. It was people hostile to the, to the, the gospel that was causing the riots. But may God do such a thing. May God do such a thing because that's what he wants to do. That was not a unique time from what he wants now. What he did back then, he can do again. He wants to do again. It's just, will he find the men and women that will be willing to go and pay the price? So what happens is in the beginning of Philippians chapter 3, um, Paul lays out his worldly credentials. And he doesn't do this to boast. He does this to make an argument. And the argument is important. He's going to establish this, this because of the importance of what he's going to bring out, the contrast. And so in verse 4, he says, If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. I'm not going to take the time to go through and highlight what he's saying there. But if you were a Jew of 2,000 years ago, I guarantee when you saw that list, you'd be impressed. Gentiles might not, unless they had some kind of understanding what that meant. To us, we're not really that greatly impressed by it. But the Jews of 2,000 years ago would have been very impressed. Paul was an up-and-coming great in Israel. He was a mover and shaker. Many theologians believe that he was even on the Sanhedrin council, which meant that he had to be over 30 years old. And so here's this man that at the very least is friends with those in the Sanhedrin council because he gets a writing, a permission to be able to persecute the church in Damascus from the Sanhedrin council. And so here's a man that's doing more beyond what all of his equals were. This man is, is aggressive. He is trying to get to the top. And so he thinks that's what life is all about. He was educated by the best of the best of the day, by Gamaliel. I mean, he was an educated man, so it wasn't like some, some dumb individual. It was a man that had great intellect, had been greatly trained, and he was a man aggressive in trying to get somewhere. Where he wanted to go with all that, we don't know. But he was wanting to become one of the movers and shakers in Israel. And then we come to verses 7 through 11. I'm going to read these verses, and then we'll begin to actually get into them. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss for the, compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I, can, I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. In these verses, we are going to see the heart of Paul revealed, unfold before us. This would be many years ago, it could be 20, 30 years ago, that a song came out and you know, this happens, I would imagine it's happened to many of you, if not all of you. You know, some new worship song comes out, and for whatever reason, it just really speaks to you with whatever's going on, and you'll be worshiping with it, or be in church, or whatever, and you'll just be in tears. Well, this was one of them. First time I heard it, just broke down in tears. And uh, you know the song, it's an old one, but you know the song, and it comes right out of this portion of Scripture. I'll read one of the verses to you, and I'll explain what moved me to tears. All I once held dear, built my life upon, all this world reveres and wars to own. 
All I once thought gain, I have counted loss, spent and worthless now compared to this. Knowing you, Jesus, knowing you. You know what brought me to tears? It's a thought that's in this portion of Scripture that I read, but it doesn't say it verbatim, but it's a thought that's there. And it was a thought warring to own. All that we wore to own. Do you remember what it was to be an unsaved man or woman? Do you remember? Do you remember the loneliness? Do you remember the hurt, the pain, the confusion? Whatever the exact dynamics that brought you to Christ, do you remember what it was? where you were trying to get something out of life, whether you were in the business world or in the drug culture. You were trying to get something, whatever it is that you thought was of value, whatever you thought was most important, and you were seeking after that, you were striving for, you were warring to own. You wanted something, and yet you couldn't find it. It was unobtainable. It's like fog. And you, bet you have fog around here. You've seen it. I've been in places where the fog is so thick you can hardly see the hand in front of your face. But the next time you see a heavy fog, try and grab it. There's nothing there. There's nothing of substance. Every time you reach for it, you grab nothing in your hand. And that's what the devil puts before us, this fog, this illusion. You'll be happy if you have this. You'll be happy if you have that. All you need is more money, another spouse, another this, another that. And you keep looking for these other things because the lies are there whispering in your ear. And you chase after them. And just when your hand is ready to close upon it, there's nothing there. And guess what happens? The moment you grab and you find nothing there, another illusion comes up. And you chase after that one. You chase after that And your whole life clawing and striving. All I got to do is get somewhere, somewhere to the top, whatever your top might be. My top was as a partier. I lived a party. That was it. I just looked for the next high, the next best high. That's all I wanted in my life. Vanity and vexation of spirit. And yet could never, ever, ever once give me what I thought it would. It was always empty. And my pursuit of sin is no different than what yours was. Even if you were pursuing to become a multi-millionaire, as you chased after it, everything you chased after ended up being absolutely vain and left you empty on the inside because the world cannot satisfy what is inside of you. It cannot satisfy that need. And that's what God uses. He pulls upon that. So here you have Paul wanting to go to the top of his religion, wanting to be one of the movers and shakers, wanting to be somebody of great importance, and he already attained a certain amount of that. So he's striving to get there. He's fighting. He's clawing. He thinks he's doing God's will. And he didn't even understand he was at war with God. And then you know what, what happened? Now, I like saying this. I know I've probably said it here before a few times at least. But um, I really dislike it when they call Jesus or the Holy Spirit a gentleman uh, because there's no verse anywhere in the Bible that teaches such a thought. He's not a gentleman. He's not a gentleman. Is it a gentleman to take a man, knock him down, blind him, terrify him, and have him for three days because the trauma is so great he will not eat or drink? Is that a gentleman? No, that's a savior. That's what Jesus was doing. He was shaking that man that thought he was so together and shook him so deeply and so profoundly for three days. He's in the agony of repentance. The misery of that man's life for that time was, 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 some of us may understand, some of us may not, but it was intense. And in that moment, he realized what he was doing. And can you imagine the horror of that? How many people? He went and was consenting to the stoning of Stephen. He was giving authority to that. That's what that meant. They threw the, their cloaks at the feet of Stephen, which meant that Stephen was giving authority. You know where he got that authority from? He got it from the Sanhedrin. Gave him authority to kill Stephen. He watched Stephen. He heard Stephen's sermon. He saw Stephen's face glow like an angel. He heard what Stephen said, those final words, Lord, forgive them. I guarantee you, I, that's put in Scripture there because it's something that God used to haunt that man. Haunted him. And yet he's still so blind by his religion, so blind by his sin, that he's just pursuing it. And I would imagine he became even more aggressive trying to silence the conviction of the Holy Spirit in him. 
Because the conviction was saying, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're in war with me, you're in rebellion. And he was just trying to do everything to say, no, look at what I'm doing, look at how good I am, look at how righteous I am, look at how much I keep the law, look at how holy I am. And then God sends Ananias, not the one who was slain earlier. <laughs> he, was, he was good and dead, all right? So a different Ananias sends him, and uh, uh, that guy was scared to come. I mean, when you read the account, he was scared to come because Paul's reputation, man, it was, I mean, it was, he was a scary man. But he obeyed, and he went, and he prayed for Paul. Paul was saved, baptized in the Holy Ghost, and his eyesight was restored. And then he could say something. He could speak of the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus. In that one moment, when salvation burst into his life, when forgiveness came and he felt the weight of sin fall off him, what a beautiful illustration in, the, in Pilgrim's Progress of the weight coming off when he comes to Calvary. That's what literally happened. That's what happened to me. How about you? You feel the weight of it. You feel the freedom. You feel this thing. You don't even know how to explain it, but this comes, it comes off you. You feel something so radical, so different, so beautiful, so freeing. And in that moment, he spoke of the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus. There's a biblical principle that we need to really understand. One cannot take hold of God without an intense longing for him. There is no place in Scripture that we are allowed to have half-hearted devotion. No place. Why do we have half-hearted devotion? Because we don't want to give everything. We have these idols, these things in our life that we don't want to get rid of, that we cling to, that we justify. And yet they're still hostile to God, though. And what happens is we really miss the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus. Is if God came to you like he came to Solomon and says, ask anything you want, what would you ask? Would you ask like Solomon for this great knowledge of God, the place of relationship, or would you ask for the wealth? Would you ask for the position? Would you ask for, and you justified, of course, in your own mind, if I had all this wealth, think of all the good I could do for the kingdom of God. What would we really ask if we could do it? Or would we understand the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus and all that we would want, all that would matter is to know Christ. That that would be the thing that we'd be saying, God, I want, I want, I want Ephesians 1.17. I want this, this wisdom and revelation of who you are so I can know you better. That's what I want. Is that what would burn in your heart? Or would it be a comfortable life, an easy life, money, all you wanted, all the dreams of your life? What would it be? You see, he had come to the point to count the world as rubbish. And I like the King James translation better that says dung, okay? Dung. Across the country is Highway 10, I-10. Goes from shore to shore. And uh, you go from one border of Texas to the other border, and it's 860 miles. Okay, pretty big, all right? Takes a long time to get across it. And, uh, you know, you're driving along, and all of a sudden you go, well, we know what that smell is, you know. I mean, it's pretty obvious what it is. But, I mean, you're still five, ten miles away, and you come to a feedlot with 20,000 head of cattle or however many they got. I mean, it's, you look at it, it's a sea of black and white, you know, sea of cows. It's just like... You know, and so what are they doing? They're fattening them up to be able to send them to McDonald's and Burger King and so on, you know. I mean, that's what it's all about. Dung, okay? It stinks. I mean, it, it stinks, stinks. I mean, it's really bad. I preached in a, in a uh, church in Arizona that the church was just outside of a, of a large dairy farm. And I'll tell you what, man, you, you know, you go in the church, it was okay, in the motorhome, eh, it was getting in there, you know, but you go out and it's like, bam, it's in your face. You can't get away from it. You know, why do you want to live in that city unless you're part of the, the, the uh, cattle industry? You know, it's like just, it's, I don't, can you get used to it? But imagine this cowboy 
that, you know, he's working at a feedlot, and he's out there wrestling with the cows and moving them around and doing all this stuff he does, and you can't walk around dainty like going, oh, I don't know, oh, there's another pile. You know, you just have to, you got to do your business. You got to wrestle with these cows, and so it's poo all over your boots and on your pants, and, you know, it splashes up because cows aren't very polite, and, you know, I mean, all the dynamics, are, it's all over you, and then you want to go to Walmart's. You know, you're off, you need to buy some, some whatever, and you go there, and Okay, you change your boots and you change your, your pants and, you know, but still this brown haze is around you, you know? I mean, and so you figure you're going to help a little bit and you go and you take some cologne, you know, like my dad used to use Old Spice, nasty stuff, but, you know, you put that all over. Now you just have this nasty, smelly, pooey, I mean, it's like just disgusting and that's what we do in the world. We got the stench of sin upon us the ugliness of sin, and then we just try and take a little bit of, of perfume and cologne or something, put it on and say, my, this is better, and you just stink all the worse, you know? You have that sweet, cologne smell with the, with the manure smell, and it's like Paul came to the point to get his nostrils cleaned out. You understand? He got an aroma of heaven, and when he got an aroma of heaven, he knew what the smell of hell was now. Why is there so much worldliness in the church? Because the world doesn't, because the church doesn't know what the world really smells like. They're still rolling in it. They're still rolling in it. They don't understand what it is. They're playing it. The stench of sin is upon them, and they think it's okay. Well, I got this little problem. It's not a big issue. It is humongous because it's not just that it separates us from God, that it strips the church of the anointing. I mean, the effects, the, the, the repercussions of it are humongous. And so until we understand the prize, we're never going to understand what the world is. I mean, that's, it, you don't understand the world by examining the world. You understand the world by looking at Jesus, by studying Jesus, by knowing him, by falling in love with him, by your heart burning and panting and being dis- desperate for him like we were singing. It's that desperate heart after God that begins to know and understand what the world is. And that's where the world becomes repulsive. Not that they hate the people of the world, but they don't want that stench on them anymore. They knew what it was to roll in the manure. They knew what it was to live in it. They knew all the ugliness of it and the horror of it and the pain of it. And they don't want it anymore. And when you start becoming clean, the slightest little bit on you, you, you can tell, man. It's just, the smell's there. You're going, get it off. Get, oh God, cleanse me. I don't want that filth on me anymore. You see, holiness is never legalism. It's always a passion for God, always. And if it's not a passion after God, then, then it is legalism. Holiness is really all about relationship. But you know what happens? Jesus goes and cleans us up, gives us a, a smell of heaven, the aroma of heaven. We begin to understand a little bit the beauty of it and Whatever happens, man, it just happens. You know, you're doing so good in Christ, and then all of a sudden, this wandering heart, you know, and you start somehow moving away. And you know what happens? The warring and owning that you did at one time, you start to return back to. It's like you go, just, well, just a little bit of manure on me isn't bad. It's just, just a little bit's okay. It still stinks. It still affects our life. It affects our relationship. It affects the church. And we need to understand the implications of it because they're serious. Paul said he counted the world as dung because of the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus for a reason. What was the reason? He wanted to gain Christ. Now, pastoral preaching, most often, we got a, uh, an evangelist pastor as the pastor of this church, so he has that evangelist heart and that pastor's heart there, you know? But if you got somebody that's kind of like just a straight pastor, um, you know, he does a lot more how-to messages. And, um, you know, the how-tos are good, they're practical, teach you some of the things with it, but they really don't go after the heart. As an evangelist, I'm always going after the heart. The heart's the issue. That's where I'm, 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 I'm out after the heart. Because people change because their heart changes. If their head changes, it doesn't mean they change. Okay, so it's the heart. And so 
how do we gain Christ? Here's two ways according to the heart. Now, you can have the how-tos afterwards. You can process the how-tos. How do I do this? But the heart, man, this is the issue here. We gain Christ. The first thing we gain Christ because we begin to have a burning passion for him. Whatever burns in your heart is what you're going to seek after, is what's going to define your life. What burns in you is what you're going to want more than anything. It's what's going to consume your thoughts, consume your mind, consume your time, consume even your wallet. It's what's going to define you. And so what is that? What is it? Do you have a burning passion for Christ? Or what is it that's taking the place of that burning passion for him? What is it? Because there's something that's there because we can't help but having that. It is the nature of us as human beings. Something is going to burn in us. Some kind of desire is going to be there. Something's going to be, be, be driving us. And it's either going to be sin in this world, it's going to be self, or it's going to be Christ. And what is it? Which one is it? What, we need to really decide this. We need to really come to an understanding of this and make the choice. Saying, Do I really want what, what Christianity is, where God is burning inside of me? Where a desire for holiness becomes this, this, this expression of love, of pursuit of God? Whatever burns in us, the second thing is what we surrender to. And you know, we have a terrible time with surrender. We really do. I mean, there's some of you right now that have been in this church for a long time, and you are struggling right now still with surrender. Why? Why? What have you gained by an unwillingness to surrender? What have you gained? What good has come out of your unwillingness to surrender? But yet we can be so rebels, so deep down inside of us, that we refuse to surrender because of what we don't know. We can't even process it sometimes, but that rebellion is still there. We're still resisting. We're still saying no to God, even though we can't give rhyme or reason to it. We can't even give one good thing that's come out of it, but we could give a huge list of the bad that came out of it. We can give a huge list on how it affects the life, the marriage, the situation we're in, whatever it may be, how, these, how this rebelliousness has influenced us in such negative ways, and yet when he says, surrender, Instead of just running and throwing yourself at his feet, you just stay at a distance. No, why? But what has it ever gotten you? What has it ever gotten you? Why? I mean, have you ever taken the time to really process the resistance you have? Because what is causing you to resist is the God that is defining your life, that's keeping you from the true and living God, that's keeping you from him. You hope you're Christian enough to go to heaven, but you don't want to be so Christian that you find this place of surrender, but when you find surrender, when you really begin to understand it, you find it sweet and beautiful and liberating. And when you find it, you say, why in the world did I fight? Why? 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 In the end, it really comes down to be who's going to be God. Our old wicked, sinful nature with its inherent, incurable addiction to sin or the Lord Jesus by his spirit in us? Who is really going to govern our life? Who's going to be Lord? I just want to take a moment and comment on verse 9 because it's so personal to me. And we're going to get to the core of where the message is, what I really want to press on for a few minutes, which is verse 10. Paul spoke of how he wanted to be found in Christ. And so I was a young drug addict, a hippie, just... Like I said earlier, living the party, that's all I live for. I'm not kidding. There was, I had no ambition for work. I had no ambition for nothing but to be high. I woke up, I wanted to be high. I wanted to be high when I went to bed. I wanted to be high everywhere in between. That's all I live for. I had no ambition of down the road of, of becoming a somebody. I just wanted the party. That was it. I thought that was the reason for existence for a young man. Okay? You can say that was crazy, and it was. But that's what I live for. And yet inside of me, there was a loneliness that ate at my soul because it was loneliness that ultimately brought me to Christ. It was this ache. Nothing I did, nothing could satisfy this ache. No high, no person, no, no party, nothing could satisfy it. It was this ache. I couldn't have told you what it was. I couldn't have put it in words. I had no ability to do that. But it was there, and it haunted me. And then in a park where I partied and dealt drugs, 
I tell people I, I, I ask Jesus in my heart, I don't know what I did. All I know is one moment I'm a drug addict, and the next moment I am completely 100% set free. Set free from drugs and alcohol and smoking, man. I was transformed, and I stood in that, in that park from noon on a Saturday in September and started telling my friends about Jesus. It had to be pretty bizarre because I didn't know nothing. But I was revolutionized. And you know what happened? In the moment where that surrender came, I was found in him. I became his. How wonderful. How wonderful it is to belong to him and know that he is good and kind and loving and compassionate. And that he has infinite in power to help me down the road of whatever it is so that because he wants me home more than I want to go home, I became his. What a phenomenal thing. I cannot forget that. I don't want to forget that. It is the wonder of what this Christian faith is all about, that he took a rebel and adopted him as a son. And then verse 10. What made Paul Paul? This is what made Paul Paul. This is it right here. This is the nitty-gritty. This is why Paul was a revolutionary, a spiritual revolutionary. I want to know Christ. When that is what burns in our heart, everything is defined by that little phrase. I want to know Christ. Your prayers are defined by it. Your life is defined by it. The pursuit of holiness is defined by it. When sin comes knocking on the door, you want to deal with it because you have that cry, I want to know Christ, and this will keep me from that. That's what makes radicals. That's what makes men and women to become the movers and shakers that God wants in this world because something begins to burn in them. I want to know Christ. I want to know him because you taste of him and knowing him is better than life itself, like the psalmist said. Knowing him, literally knowing him. This isn't a make-believe relationship. This isn't some dead religion where we're worshiping an idol. It is a real living relationship with the real and living God that makes himself as real to us as any other person. We may not see him with our eyes or touch him, but that relationship is no less real. And if it's not real to you, it's not the fault that God doesn't make it real. It's the fault that you have not pursued it to the point of where it becomes a passion of your heart. And if you don't know how to make that a passion of your life, that's fine. God can deal with that. But you know what you have to do? You have to be ruthlessly honest with yourself and with God. Say, God, I don't know how to get there. I don't know how to get there. I don't know how to, I don't know how to become that person that, that the preacher is talking about. I know how to do that. But God, I'm asking for you to do that. And you start crying out to him day and night. I guarantee you he's going to answer that prayer. You may not see some flash of lightning out of the sky, but there's going to be something beginning to change inside of you where your heart begins to burn and begins to desire him. That's going to cause you to press in a little bit more. You find your prayer life starting to come alive. You find yourself being more and more with him, not because you have this big stick over your head that says you've got to pray, but it's this thing that you just love being with him. You just love being with him. And so it's what comes out of you. It's what defines you. It's just, you just know this is what you need and you'd rather be with him than to be with friends. If you haven't been with him, you'll reject friends that you might spend time with Jesus because he becomes the love of your life, the passion of your life. That is normal Christianity. And so it's a desperate cry that make a man a woman of God. You see, God doesn't need your gifts and talents. You know, that's what we think. Well, I don't know if I have the right gifts and talents. It's not the issue. It's never been the issue. Does God use the gifts and talents we have? Absolutely, he does. But you know what he wants? A surrendered life. That's what he can do the miraculously. You can't raise a person from the dead. You can't make a blind person see. You can't save a person. You can't convict a person. But there's one who can. And when he's operating through us, he can do that and will do that. Because that's his heart. You see, this desire to know Christ produces action. It produces something in our life. It doesn't make a bunch of excuses. It doesn't bring us to blame shifting and blaming other people why we're not what we should be. We begin to deal with ourselves. We deal with the reality of it, and we start pressing in. We start saying, these things have to fall off my life. I can't live in compromise. I can't have this stuff in my life. God, I've got to overcome. And so now you have this passion to begin to pursue him more and more and to walk in the victory because that's the very next thing that he says. He wanted to know Christ, but he wanted to know what? The power of his resurrection. 
David Brainerd, phenomenal man of God. Used of God in tremendous ways. I'm not going to take the time to go into his life. But God used him to see revival among the Delaware Indians in the 1730s. In his diary he wrote, When I really enjoy God, I feel my desires of Him the more ravenous, and my thirstings after holiness the more unquenchable. Oh, this pleasing pain, it makes my soul press after God. You read these old saints. I'm not talking about the pop junk that's out there. You read these old saints that have a passion for God, and you find these kind of thoughts in it all over the place because they're talking about how this God burned inside of them and pressed. They pressed in more and more because they wanted to know him, and it's what defined his life. That's what God's looking for. It's not the talent. It's not the gifts. It's not the abilities. It's not intellectual knowledge about God that quenches our our ancient soul thirst that burns inside of us, but it's the very person and presence of God himself. That's what does it. That's the only thing that can do it. Jesus, Jesus himself, this desire for him, and any concept of lukewarm Christianity that moves away from that needs to be understood at what it is, that it wasn't a religion defined by God, but it has been man-defined, inspired by hell, to move us away from this passion for God that we were created to have to move us into some lukewarm religion. I want to know the power of his resurrection. Let me just make this very simple here. He wanted to know the victorious Christian life. I know you've heard me say this before. Grace was never given to us to justify our sin. Grace is given to us to be victorious over sin. When people are overcoming sin, you see grace in operation. When people are in bondage to sin, they can make the excuse, well, I'm saved by grace. All they're doing is their life is speaking. Grace is not in operation. You understand? Grace in operation gives victory. Defeat is evidence that grace is not in operation. It's so important, this simple little thing. How in the world, and Paul dealt with it, but how in the world do we get to this place where, we, where we've turned the grace of God into a reason of compromise, a reason to justify our sin? Instead of understanding he gives grace, offers it to his sons and daughters saying, child, I'm offering you grace so you do not have to be in bondage to that anymore. All the grace, all the grace needed. He gives us everything that's needed for life and godliness. That's what Peter told us. He holds nothing back. It's all there, right there, all available for us. All we've got to do is lay our hands on it. All we've got to, to do is by faith believe the promise and be willing to pursue him and cry out for that desperation like we were singing about. And so this is where we need to begin to treat sin like sin and stop whitewashing it, stop calling it something different, Stop saying that it's, well, it's just a problem or, or God understands or, you know, well, this is just the way I am. You know, all the excuses that we have, worthless, worthless excuses to keep us in the practice of sin rather than in overcoming it because that's what he offers us. You know, I've heard so many people talk about, well, this is the way I am. Well, that's your fault then. <laughs> Don't blame that on God, all right? If you want to be a new creature in Christ, he's offering you everything you need for that. He'll give you everything to be that new creature, that you don't have to act the way you've acted, be what you've been. Everything's there. It's all there. If you aren't operating in that, it's because you said no to him, going back to what I had brought out earlier about an unwillingness to surrender. And then it brings us to the final point. I'm just going to close with this. And this is a really um, almost anti-American, okay? It's really good Bible, though. But it's uh, basically anti-American that Paul said he wanted to know the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. What do we want today? We want the prosperity gospel. We want a message that's going to give us everything we want out of life and all the, the happiness and prosperity. And, and Paul's doing the exact opposite. I want to be used to turn the world upside down. I want to know the power of Christ's resurrection. But Lord, I love you enough. I'm willing to suffer for you and with you. Paul was beaten five times with a cat of nine tails. I can't imagine what that man's back looked like. I can't imagine the aches and pains that he had. Three times he was beaten with rods, which is actually absolutely brutal. It is brutal because they beat you in such a way to not break the skin. So as the blood is congealing under the skin, the pain is worse. 
It's unbelievable. Three times he was beaten like that. Once he was stoned to death, raised from the dead when the saints gathered around him, shipwrecked and went hungry and all these things. Did he like any of it? No. I'll guarantee you what he did like, seeing people repenting, seeing cities turned upside down. I guarantee you what he loved seeing was those people who were turning from the bondage of sin to the liberty that comes to the sons and daughters of God. I guarantee you that was joy in his heart because he even says, what is my joy and my crown of rejoicing? And you know what he said? He says, it's you because you have repented. You have come to Christ through the labor that I've done. You are the joy in my heart because God has used me for your salvation. Revival began in New York City in 1857 through a convert of Charles Finney. His name was Jeremiah Lamphere. And through it began the prayer meeting revival. I'm not going to take the time to lay it all out. But New York at that time had a population of 700,000 people. 50,000 people were saved in New York City. 50,000 people. A million people were saved in America. It jumped the pond. When it broke out in 1859 in the UK, 500,000 were saved in Britain, 300,000 in Scotland, 100,000 in Wales, and 100,000 in Ireland. I'm going to give you an account of the 1859 revival in Scotland. Reginald Radcliffe, a very famous preacher, was preaching along the fishing coast, seeing revival, but he felt the call of God to go to another part of Scotland. And so he's praying for somebody to take his place. And God raised up a man. His name was James Turner. Some of you may have heard me give this story, but it is a good story. So if you have, just listen to it and let it stir your heart. James Turner was devoid of learning, and he did not have the gift of public speaking. He was dying of tuberculosis when his great task began. He was little in stature. His voice was feeble. His eye deformed by a squint. But this frail, broken, disfigured vessel was filled with a passionate love to Jesus Christ, an intense hungering compassion for souls, and an invincible faith in God, and he could pray. Therefore God was able to lift him up, and out of weakness made him strong, and in two crowded years of glorious life, he used this dying man to win to him 8,000 souls. On December 6th, in the little fishing village of St. Combs, he began his memorial mission. From village to village he went, and everywhere along the seacoast, his course was marked by a trail of divine fire. As he went on, the blessings increased, and his coming was awaited with intense eagerness. They thronged around him and marched in a body from town to town. In this way, he at last reached Banff. It was found impossible to dismiss the people, and through the whole night a great reaping went on. Many of the most notorious sinners in that town were saved, and many who first saw the Lord that night went forth to declare his glory in all parts of the earth. He, d excuse me, he died in the midst of revival. It was a matchless love of Christ that filled his vision, and his last words were, Christ is all. Just like David Brainerd died at the height of revival, and like Robert Murray McSheehan died at the height of revival, so this man, James Turner, died at the height of revival. He died of tuberculosis. It's a disease of the lungs. That's why his voice was feeble. Thousands of people gathered around him, and they'd be in this rapt silence, listening to this man whisper out messages from heaven that pierced their hearts and brought them to weeping and agony of conviction. How many good, healthy men did the Lord pass by before he came to James Turner? I want you to hear me. How many good, healthy men, good preachers, good ministries? And they said no to Jesus. And then he comes to this man dying of tuberculosis in his bed. And this is what I imagine in my own mind. And he comes and he speaks to James. He says, James, James, oh, 
Yes, Lord. I've got a work for you to do for me. Oh, Jesus, what do you want? I want you to go preach. Oh, Jesus, I don't know how to preach. I don't know how to read. How can I do that? I'll give you the ability. Okay. So he used the man. Shaming, shaming all the preachers in the country that said no to God. Shaming them all. Because he had a man that was willing to do what they could have done way better than him and probably gotten better results. But God found the man who said yes who was willing to live the life, who was a man of prayer, who was a man who had a passion, a man who did not have excuses and began to pursue this God with everything with him, even though he was dying and he was willing to do this. And can you imagine the agony of the lungs as he's speaking out a whisper? He's preaching out a whisper and he dies in the midst of the revival. He could have died in a home comfortable or at least a little more comfortable. And instead, he spent everything he might know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing his suffering so that somehow, somehow he could attain to the resurrection of the dead, that he could be with Jesus. Father, we come before you now in the precious name of Jesus. Lord, my heart aches for radicals. My heart aches for Jesus. Aches for it in my own heart, Lord, but aches for it in the church in America. God, the apostasy is getting worse in our country. And instead of the church becoming more beautiful and more holy, it just seems like it's following suit. Lord, instead of people becoming passionate in pursuit, their compromise is opening up doors of sin and they're just justifying it in their own minds instead of just realizing the horrid evil, the stench of, the, of sin, this manure of hell. And they're going back to it and it's, and it's sticking to them and it's causing the stench to be upon them. And instead of cleansing from the blood of Christ, instead of getting that cleansing, they continue to justify what they're doing instead of seeing your revolution, your spiritual revolution in their life. God, we need James Turners in this country. We need James Turners in this community, Lord. Lord, I'm asking that you would set some hearts ablaze. I ask that you do it in all of our lives because you're not a respecter of people. You want to do it in all of us, God. But Lord, may you find some that will finally say yes to you. Finally say yes. And Lord, if there's anybody here that they are backslid, that they, are, that they don't know you, God, I'm asking that you bring them home. Jesus, bring them home. Bring them home. Let them at this moment, at this very moment, see the excellency of knowing Christ Jesus. Let them see the excellency of who you are, the wonder, the beauty, the splendor of what it is that you, the creator God, would be concerned about us rebels, that you'd be willing to break into our life, our, break into our lives to deliver us from this idolatrous self-love, oh God. Lord, if there's anybody here that's not right, God, I'm praying that they would want to run home, that all that would matter this morning, all that would matter is to get right. That's all that would matter. What people say, what people think, what people do is irrelevant, oh God. All that they would want is right now to get right because they're not right with you, oh God. Lord, that you call people to yourself. In the precious and wonderful name of Jesus.